My name is Scott Weiss, and you're listening to Let's Get to Work, the podcast series that dives deep into recruiting and hiring trends, the global workforce, the future of work, job search tips, technology, and more. Hi, everybody. This is Scott Weiss. Welcome to another episode of the Let's Get to Work podcast. Today, I am pleased to have with me Walt Brown. Walt is a lifelong sailboat racer, a published author, and the founder of 7Q7P, a business transfer. Damn it. All right. Let me start that. (laughs) I almost had it. Yes, you did good. All right. Here we go. Hi, everybody. It's Scott Weiss. Welcome to another episode of the Let's Get to Work podcast. We're glad to have you. With me today is Walt Brown. Walt is a lifelong sailboat racer, published author, and the founder of 7Q7P, which is a business transformation program. Thanks for being here, Walt. Thanks for having me, Scott. What else are you supposed to say when you start a podcast? Thanks for having me. Yeah, no problem. You know what? Let me do that again because I think I talked over you. Okay. Okay. All right. Sorry about that. We'll hit it. Hi, everybody. This is Scott Weiss. Thanks for listening. Welcome to another episode of the Let's Get to Work podcast. With me today is Walt Brown. Walt is a lifelong sailboat racer, a published author, and the founder of 7Q7P, which is a business transformation program. We're glad to have you here, Walt. Thanks for having me, Scott. Awesome. So I got to get into it uh, straight away on the sailboat racing. How did that come about? How'd you get into it? And what's that experience been like for you? Uh, I grew up with the family, like a little tiny boat called a sunfish, 14 feet long, that we would sail around on lakes and things. You spend more time as like a little nine-year-old or 10-year-old with the thing flipped upside down, pretending it's a you know, submarine. And then that grew into a sailing camp that I went to was introduced to a class of boat called a lightning. And, uh, you know, one thing led to the next, uh, group of friends were together getting boats and just, you know, started racing. I think when I was 14 years old and, uh, raced till I was 51, 58 now. So what is for someone that knows absolutely nothing about sailboat racing? What, what is the world of sailboat racing? Like, I mean, what, what is the experience like? What is it that gets people excited about it? Um, what can you do with it if it's something you get into? Yeah, you know, and I guess a lot of the impact of my experience with sailboat racing is the way it overlaps into the world of business. But a uh, couple things about sailboat racing is, you know, when, when there's a sailboat that's being raced in the in the household, there's normally a horse. So it's a, uh, even though I wasn't an affluent kid, uh, hung around with a lot of affluent people. And sort of the joke is, if you can't be the king, it's nice to know the king. And a lot of times, kings have and race sailboats, and uh, they need people to help them race these boats. And uh, so, so sailing is one of these things that uh, not a lot of people think about or understand. If you go back, you know, thousands of years, uh, humans have have navigated and sailed around the world, you know, just using the wind. It's it's an it's an amazing thing to focus on, and when you step back and consider what someone is doing when they're, you know, sailing a sailboat, they are uh, interfacing with something that's invisible. You know, the wind is absolutely invisible, and all you can do is pick up on all the patterns around that that show you what the the wind is doing. You know, it's it, how it blows on the water and the 
on flags and leaves and, you know, things like that and on the clouds. So you're, you know, dealing completely with nature and getting all of your power only from nature. It's, uh, you know, and like the earth, that's a pretty, pretty cool thing when you get kind of spiritual like that about it. And that's probably what is kind of that addictive element for people is being able to kind of cross that threshold into sort of the unknown and you're tapping into like the earth and the environment. And obviously there's the uh, element of having the kind of the machinery and the, you know, the gear, so to speak. And then of course, you know, probably maybe above everything else is just the, the teamwork element, perhaps the coming together as a group, because I mean, I know that there's folks who race sailboats solo, I think, but more common, it's a team effort. Is that right? Oh, yeah, absolutely a team effort. So, you know, once you, of course, it's it's a highly specialized equipment sport, you know, and you have to get the, you have to get the boat, you know, what we, what we always called moving and you tune the boat to go as fast as it can and you have to make all the right decisions on the race course. But ultimately it came down to, you know, like a, a wheel it really well tuned team. So I raced on a bunch of three man boats, uh, all the way up to a couple of big 56 foot 17 crew boat. And it's all about teamwork and changing of positions and communication. And, you know, what you find a lot is if you, if you step back, uh, current, uh, America's cup stuff, which is America's cup was like Dennis Connors. A lot of people remember that. Now it's into like, uh, what they call foiling catamarans and, and the biggest player in the American side of foiling catamarans, the America's cup is Larry Ellison of, of Oracle. And, you know, I had a lot of good opportunities over the years to talk to businesses owners about why sailing and racing sailboats was a, uh, it's really racing sailboats is what we're more involved in and why it was interesting to them. So, uh, so let's, let's talk for a minute about the teamwork aspect of it. So my guess is that through your years of, of racing and being part of the race community, you really kind of tapped into the notion of teamwork in terms of what, what makes, the, what makes a team work well and what keeps a team from performing at their very best. And what are some of the, the key takeaways that you've brought from sailing into the business world around teamwork and the importance of teamwork in business specifically? Yeah. So it's uh, one of the really cool things about you know, sailboat racing that, that's, that's attractive to it is you, you get to start and you finish and you score. Where you know in typically, typically life, you know, it's just a long-term thing. Only we we finish when we die. There's never really any end game to it, right? So, and, and in business, we never really finish and score. So, what it does is is uh, you know, you get out there on a starting line with 30 boats, and you come in 28th. That's not a really good feeling, you know. And if you have a dysfunctional team, certainly that doesn't ring true very well. And you know, if you got a team that that's winning. You know, you're coming in first, second, or third. It's a, it's an absolute ton of fun, and it has a tendency to bond the team. So it's uh, you know, I've been on both all types of boats, teams that were really wonderful, and that uh, when we lost, we were able to gather together and figure out what it was and make improvements and come back the next day and try this or try that. And you might have two or three races during a day that you can try in between, and just the really functional, healthy teams were able to stop bury the egos, bury the agendas, you know, go around and really pull out everybody's, uh, 
understanding what went on on the boat during the day and try to make improvements. Uh, we, a lot of times we did that uh, in hot tubs or in, in pools down in Key West with a few beers in your hands, you know, and you'd stop and say, boy, we took a licking today. Let's, let's get in the pool and, and uh, everybody loosen up a little bit and let's uh, debrief the day. So do you think that that's the key right there is the difference between successful teams and I guess less successful teams is the ability for the team members to check their ego at the door, be honest and real about themselves and with each other and ultimately just uh, communicate versus an environment where maybe there's one or more team members that are kind of stuck within themselves. They can't put their guard down and that sort right. of infects the team to where communication becomes a problem and ultimately you just don't see the results. Yeah. Yeah. And I, it's a couple stories on that. You know, it's uh, Patrick Lencioni, the author of five dysfunctions of a team and death by meeting. He has this really cool matrix called the trust debate, commitment, accountability results matrix. I'll hit in just a minute, but where I saw this really manifest a whole lot. So, so I raced on some boats that were, just absolutely, uh, we'd called them a Corinthian class. So you would have a boat, it was called a J105, it's 35 feet long. And there was only one professional allowed on the boat, and it was typically sailed with seven to six people. And, uh, but it was Corinthian, they were amateurs, you know, they, they, they you didn't win anything but a trophy. And in all of sailboat racing, all you win is all you win is a trophy. Uh, and then you would go up the line, I, I raced on a boat called a Swan 56. They're typically owned by, I guess nowadays we'd refer to them as billionaires. And uh, there were 17 people on the boat and there would always be, you know, like a professional, like one of the professionals would be the sailmaker. And the sailmaker was this person who was supposed to bring a ton of talent to the team. And you would find some sailmakers were really good team builders and team unifiers. And some sailmakers were just in the back and on a poor day, the, the, the lousy ones would just point fingers to everybody else on the boat and completely, you know, try to defer any kind of blame on themselves. And the really good sailmakers would, would, you know, own up, Hey, I went the wrong way. We should have gone left as opposed to right. Uh, how can we pr improve some things? You know, so let's gather everybody up. And it was just amazing when, uh, you know, so that, that core key person is not willing to be vulnerable and like trusting of the team and really put themselves out. If they don't, if they don't lead then the rest of the team won't. So won't. it's kind of a top down thing. And is, is the sale maker for all intents and purposes, kind of like the CEO in a sense of the team? Uh, you know, it's, it's, yeah, it's kind of, it varies a little bit. So what you'll have a lot of times is, is the owner of the boat will steer the boat. There'll be a rule where he has to be the guy holding on to the helm onto the wheel or the tiller. And, uh, but the the kind of you like more of like the president of the boat would be the sailmaker. Normally, they're the on a bigger boat. They're the tactician, which is sitting back. You know, we're going to go this way. Then we're going to go that way. And then the crew has very specific positions around the boat. You know, and they actually recruit you in for your talent as a position. Like I was a I was a jib trimmer and a speed tune guy going up wind. So I was really good at being able to adjust this, the, the setup of the boat and the, the trimming of the sails to make it go as fast as possible upwind. And then downwind, I was just blessed with these eyes that could see the wind on the water and call shifts and downwind. I would stand up and look out, look back up the boat. I look up, up the course and see the wind and basically 
see the wind. How do you see the wind? And I would whisper in the ear of the, the guys trimming the sails of what was coming. But that was my position. But I reported up through the sailmaker in terms of speed and stuff like that. Does that make any sense? It does. And so I guess for anybody that's listening and, um, you know, simple takeaway right here would be in, in, from my perspective that, you know, if you're the president or CEO of a company or you're uh, a leader of a team or a group of teams, that ultimately you need to be willing to be vulnerable, to check your own ego, to admit, you know, where you maybe failed or could have done better or, you know, really, yeah. really put yourself down at that level because that will ultimately uh, create a much more, you know, positive work culture versus somebody in a leadership position that refuses to self-evaluate um, and maybe they self-evaluate behind closed doors, but it's got to be something that's visible and palatable right. for the rest of the team because it just creates a level, I guess, of trust and yep. um, and commitment, right? Yeah, well, he talked, so Lencioni, kind of taking it back to that piece, is he argues that without vulnerability-based trust where you really put the issues on the table, there's no way you're going to have productive debate around the real issue. And without real productive debate and everybody feeling like they've been heard, there's no way you're going to get commitment, you know, to the decision, which creates accountability results. So that's, you know, the other thing you'd see a lot of times is, is that the awareness on the boat where uh, one boat that I raced on for a bunch of years, the uh, owner was this absolute complete introvert. You know, he was unable to verbalize what he could do, but he was a he was a big distributor of this product, made a ton of money, and he was just amazingly good at steering the boat through the waves and through the water and getting in tune, and that was his unique ability. And then when we could surround him with like a good sailmaker and the rest of the team, it was like unstoppable. So he would be like the CEO owner, and he would focus on what he was really really good at, and then he would make sure he had a team that augmented what he was not that great at. And, you know, so, so that team won consistently. And then you would get on some other boats where the owner wanted to steer plus make all the other calls and didn't delegate anything throughout the boat. And you'd, you'd be mid pack to back a pack. Yeah. And, you know, hearing you say this kind of reminds me a lot about like, I'm, I'm really into music and have played music a, a long oh, yeah. time. I've been in and out of bands and, if you Same look at thing. the truly, yeah, oh, okay, cool. So if you look at the truly great bands, um, you know, maybe there's four or five people, maybe more, but I'm sure everybody in the band would love to be the lead singer, right? Um, or there's something, you know, they, they all maybe can write songs, but when the bands, I think what separates the great bands from the good and maybe not so good ones is the ability for uh, the, the members of the band to recognize what is my what can I bring to the table here that is unique that none of the other folks in the band can do as well as me? Because we can maybe all do everything, right? But I can't right. be the lead singer and the lead songwriter and the drummer and the lead guitarist and the guy playing the sax and the producer and the engineer and the manager. So it's being able to, you know, going back to what we said earlier is checking your ego at the door and saying, okay, look, I maybe want to be able to do all these things, but let's play to our strengths. So what is it that I bring to the table here that is unique right. and special? And even though I maybe want to be doing those other things, um, I need to kind of set those aside and focus on just being the best at this one thing and being okay with that. Yeah, and recognize that that's your domain and, and where you have authority in that domain, right? It's, I mean, it just overlaps straight into the world of, of teams and, and business and organizations. So how do teams set that 
uh, how do team leaders, um, you know, business owners, CEOs, managers, how do they create an environment with that kind of a culture? Well, you know, this is what's interesting. We're kind of we're riffing on some kind of interesting type things here. Is uh, one of my clients is 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 a musician. Uh, he spent a lot of time in like orchestras and and things like that. And I help companies install an operating system. Every organization has an operating system. And when you think about a uh, a band, what's the operating system that a band operates on? What are the rhythms? What are the keys? You know what I'm saying? So I'm, I'm, my wife was a music and English major. I was an accounting and statistics guy. So I'm out of my depth here, but aren't there bars and chords and there's music and there's rhythms and there's like, uh, right. Am I on the wrong? Yeah. Well, I mean, those, those are probably elements of, of the music itself. But when you talk about a band in terms of operations, it's very much like a business and everybody plays a role. And, um, you know, there's, you know, oftentimes there emerges one kind of leader, right? And yep. the, and you don't want to necessarily create a dictatorship, but the successful bands are able to recognize that that leader, you know, the same way, I guess you would say a sailmaker brings a special unique skill to the table and they're okay about that, right? When, right. Where, you yeah. see, where you see dysfunction, and it happens all the time, especially in rock music, you hear about all the time is, Big egos. Everybody wants to be, you know, the 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 main dude, um, and there's just this constant battling of the egos. And um, while it might produce some good music for a short period of time, it's gonna you're gonna flame out because there's just an inability to function cohesively as a team. And so when you think about the the operating system of a band, I think a lot of it is kind of defining the roles, and then of course ensuring that there's constant communication about values and uh, goals and you you can't have one person in the band that is dead set on getting back in the studio and recording another album where there's three or four other people that are really more interested in going out and touring so everybody kind of has to it just i think always comes down to communication and i would guess in sailing it's it's the same whether it's verbal or nonverbal. it's if you're working as a team and you're not communicating um right or you're not communicating effectively you're heading towards disaster in almost every yeah, case. And, yeah, and so much of a, of a really good team. And, you know, in music, it's just the exact same way. In sailing, we, we, you know, we call it the nomenclature. But what are the words you're going to use? And precision of words is very important for any kind of organization. If you're, everybody needs to be calling this one thing the same thing. We need to call it the same word every time. You know, avoiding... What would be, what would be an example of that in business, like uh, precision of words? Precision of words is uh, one great example that we always use is uh, I push my clients to, you know, what are they going to call their employees, teammates, associates, co-workers, because there's a lot that goes underneath that word. And if you can choose the word that everybody believes in, then you can see it. They're bought into it. And what's interesting is, is you know, so, so there are some standard words. You know, there's a staff in music. There's port and starboard and, you know, sailing, but you know, what do you, what are you going to call things? And let's be very specific, you know, especially around, uh, like jobs, roles, positions, responsibilities. I mean, those are such loosely batted around words. You know, you have people apply for a job, you get a job, you get paid for a job. And then sometimes they say, well, we have an empty position. Do you have an empty position or an empty job? You know, and it's just this, when you, 
when you aren't precise on your words, then you create this gap and humans have a tendency to fill gaps with uncertainty or illogic or, you know. Yeah, it's really interesting because when, as you're describing that, what's jumping to my mind is Starbucks employees are referred to as partners. Um, yep. And that's just a company adopted uh, term and there's no ambiguity about it. Like you're a partner and, right. you know, it, you may not be a partner somewhere else, but when you work at Starbucks, you're a partner. And so there's no question around that. And I think, you know, it's it's interesting because I don't know if companies spend enough time really thinking about defining their own internal vocabulary and being comfortable with it. I mean, I've you know, you, you hear people a lot of times will say, you know, titles don't really matter, but they do because words matter and they have meaning. And so, yeah. um, you know, you see that, especially for me in the recruiting world, when somebody's right. at a senior manager level and their next step would be a director um, in their mind. And, they, you know, if they interview with a company that's looking to hire them as a senior manager, you know, maybe that company defines senior manager differently. But it, you know, it, it does impact the individual because they associate meaning. And then one other thing is, and I'm sure you see this a lot, there's this kind of interesting trend, especially among startups, to name your employees something that relates to the name of the company. At Google, you're a Googler. I worked mm -hmm. for a tech company called Optify. We were Optifinians. And, right, uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, I struggled with that personally because I'm kind of the anti-conformist. Uh, uh -huh. But I think it's healthy because you're trying to create that culture and it ties into vocabulary. You know, what you name things, what you call things. Yeah, because, you know, this is my I'm going a couple of automate sort of really two key points is one about, you know, the, the titles and positions are super important. Uh, but the, sort of the idea of, of culture. So. I'm going around right now. If you look up culture in the cal in the dictionary, we have culture in terms of are you cultured, you know, educated, whatever. Uh, the culture of, you, you know, how people are, how what their like attitudes and beliefs are. Then there's then, then there's like the culture of the institutions. Uh, like in American culture, we have democracy and justice and free. You know, these are some these are some institutions, and I'm currently looking at culture as the combination of attitudes and beliefs with institutions that create opportunities for uh, participation and growth. And, you know, so your institutions are like your org chart and your, your, the language that you use in your organization is, is an institution. And, you know, if you're, what's the job that you have? Sorry, I bumped up. That's all right. What's the job that you have? What are the positions that you're going to fill from that job? Like people call those roles. And yet those all need to be super clearly defined so that people understand where they are in the organization. You know, there's a lot of ambiguity nowadays where, uh, you know, if you're not clear where you're supposed to come in on the sheet of music, then you destroy everything, right? A lot of times I think about a sheet of music, and this comes from, um, I'm brain cramping on his name now, but my, my friend who's equating the way a business runs to like an orchestra, and you have all of this sheet of music, and, you know, there's when the cymbals come in and when the violins come in, and, and they're all like, those are all the positions that they're playing in the orchestra and they're playing their notes at the right time. And it all fits together. Right. And these, you know, these, what do they call the lines in the music that run right to left to right? You know, I wish I could tell you, I never learned how to read or write music. Oh, I gosh, I'm sorry. do it all by ear. <laughs> oh, I'm not the guy to ask, but, no, um, but you know what I mean? And yeah. You know, it's like well, and it's an interesting orchestra. because, um, a lot of 
musical acts too, like, you know, they're, they'll have a script in terms of this is the music, this is the structure of what we're playing. But then there will be a point in the music or the piece of music where they agree to improvise. But it's right. still defined because they're yep. all agreeing to improvise and they know um, the structure of that improvisation. So it's not like one or two of the band members are improvising and everyone else is trying to stick to the script. They're kind of all going at it together. And I think, yeah. you know, you think of bands like the Grateful Dead and Fish and some of these kind of, uh, you know, well-known jam bands. And I think what they're yeah. known for is their ability to improvise. But one of my favorite groups, and uh, it's interesting to mention this, is the Dave Matthews Band, which kind of falls in that same framework. But what's interesting about them that I don't know how many people know is they have a whole audio communication system when they're performing on stage. So when they're improvising, they're actually speaking to each other about when to bring the song back to whatever part they're trying to get to. So yeah. even within the improvisation, there's still communication, and that's crucial. Yes, and, tons, and, and that communication comes from clear organization. So like you know, the organization, each one of them knows what their roles are, and when the organization goes in a certain certain direction, you know, it might not be the CEO or the president leading. It might be that that individual over there with that unique ability that that lifts up in his or her role and leads for a period of time, right? I mean, you know, and then that takes the organization to a leapfrog to the next level, and then they get back in tune. And so, what you if know, you what if you lay all this out, and you know, in a perfect world, you'd have company wide buy in, right? But inevitably, there's going to be pushback. Not everybody is necessarily going to be on board with it. And maybe they're not comfortable expressing that. And so if they suppress that, that could be really disastrous, right? So how do you, yeah. how do you encourage businesses, teams, uh, companies, organizations to lay out clear expectations and yep. uh, also work towards buy-in where they're embracing any pushback, but not creating a kind of a chaotic environment where everybody's saying their opinions and how do you rope it all in? Yeah. You have to have an operating system that keeps all that going. And the, uh, <clears throat> the, the key is, is, is a lot of companies don't take the time to really lay down who they are. And, you know, so when they don't lay down who they are, then there's just this room for everybody to be whomever they want to. And so there's no culture. There's this, you know, multiple organizations in one. And so I press my clients really hard to get on the same page to eight, excuse me, seven specific things that they agree to as leadership. And then they try to build an organization where everybody understands what these seven things are. And we honor the individual by going, hey, this, these are the standards and these are the rules and we're going to lay them out and we're going to give you an opportunity to align with them. And ultimately, you know, if if you don't feel like you can get to yes on these seven things, then maybe this isn't the best place for you. And you can self-select out and move on down. We don't want to hold you back from a culture that's not set for you. Right. So it's just <clears throat> it's a lot of people think they're being being wonderful to people by not being clear on what the organization's culture is and how they're organized. Or really what they're doing is they're being really, really brutal and mean and evil to people by not saying this is who we are. You know, don't waste your time at this workplace where you don't fit or you can't add. Does that make any sense yeah, at all? Yeah, it does. And I, and I think the biggest issue is a lot of companies, you know, small, midsize, even large, 
don't really know who they are because they've been so focused on growth and just churning that, um, you know, they kind of make it up as they go. And it kind of turns into this, I guess, big, giant, hairy monster that they maybe don't even have control of. So, you know, right. is, is it ever too late to circle back and redefine the values and the operational structure of the company um, or the uh, operating, you call it operating uh, system? Um, does it, can you ever get to a point of where it's too late to do that? Or is there always an opportunity to stop what you're doing and reassess? Of course, I would like to say there's an, always an opportunity. It's a, the biggest companies I've ever done it with were around three, 4,000 people, you know, and that took four years to press it all the way through. But as long as the, there's still an owner or, you know, a board or whatever that really has this vision of, of the kind of organization they always wanted to have. And if they're willing to go through and, and, uh, you know, make the hard decisions and have the patience, allow people to align or select out, uh, you, you can turn it, but it, it all starts at the, at the top. And a lot of times what's going on is there's a very difficult people decision that needs to be made kind of a sacred cow that the owner or visionary or whatever, isn't really willing to make the decision on yet. And that holds everything back because you can't, you can't build a standard and then not allow everybody to, to be aligned to the standard. You can't make exceptions. So most important is that whoever's at the top has to be, uh, not only bought in, but, but driving it because, um, there's just no other way to do it effectively without or, having that. Or, I wouldn't even say they have to be bought in. They don't have to be driving it. They just have to let it work. And, and they and, can't get in the and, way. And be, okay, and be okay with it. Yes. Got it. So tell me um, about becoming an author, transitioning into putting your thoughts and ideas together into a, a book and getting that book out there and what that experience has been like for you. Oh, that was uh, just amazing you know, accounting nerd, statistics guy out of school, 20 years, have my own company, sold it in 06, started coaching. And, uh, I don't know about client number a hundred or so. This is a few years ago. How I got into writing a book is, do you remember what everybody was complaining about millennials? We're still complaining about millennials, slack millennials, all those kind of like stereotypes. And yep. I stepped back, Scott, and was like, I don't see that going on in my, in my teams, you know, what's going on. And, what I did is I asked my clients for permission to engage with their millennials, to do like little focus groups, to figure out what we were doing that, you know, was breaking the mold. And then what came out of that discovery, but they basically came up with was seven things that, you know, I was like, Hey, this is, this is something that needs to be shared with the world. And, uh, Forbes called out of the blue and said, Hey, you know, we're setting this thing up or you can pay us a bunch of money and write a book. I said, okay, I'll do that. And, uh, you know, uh, 12 months later, had had written a book called The Patient Organization, and I guess that came out July two years ago, and it's just been a it's been great sharing that message with my clients, and that's led to another book now called Death of the Org Chart that's coming out. Uh, it's being published right now. So oh, awesome, awesome. So, um, and and this is I guess in the the patient organization is that where you kind of lay out your framework or methodology, the seven Q seven P. Yeah. Yeah. So we won't what that's real, really quickly factor teeing that up. The, uh, the seven questions are, we, we would like for everybody in the organization to, to know what it means to belong, which is basically core values. 
we want them to, under, to understand and believe what we're doing. So, you, you know, this is where we're going to. Here are our strategies. Here are our priorities. Here's how you fit in. We want them to be able to believe. We would like for them to understand what they're accountable for. We'd like for them to be able to embrace how they're measured and how the organization listens, how the organization operates and offers them opportunities for development and then balance. So we would like for them to say, hey, yeah, man, I belong here. and I believe in where we're going. And yeah, I'm accountable and I'm measured and I'm heard. I'm developed and I'm balanced. And it takes the organization some time first to understand what those that yes to those seven things mean. And then we have to offer them up to the individual and say, hey, this is who we're about. You know, you have to give some effort in here. We're doing this for you because we want you to work at a great place. And we call that the seven questions, seven promises framework. Because once you answer the seven questions, then the organization makes a promise to everybody. Hey, man, this is the kind of organization we're going to build. So and, who, uh, who should read the book? Oh, gosh. Uh, anybody in like senior management, HR directors love it. But then ultimately it gets passed out to everybody in the company. It's like, hey, this is what we're doing. This is something we're doing for you as opposed to against you. And inside the book, there's a lot of psychology about fear and how we're trying to get rid of fear and, you know, going all the way back to where we started. It's all about building trust. So if you're yeah. an employee that um, values your organization and recognizes an opportunity to kind of redefine what, what the company's about and kind of get to that next level, instead of doing the Jerry Maguire where you uh, write your own memo and then get humiliated when it gets passed around and you get laughed at, we could bring your book in, right? And then yeah. uh, kind of outsource that thought leadership and pass the book around and, and, and your methodology yeah. within the book is, is, a, is, a, is a framework for regardless of the size of your organization at any level, uh, impacting change. And think about it as, so this came to me one day, I was talking to my friend Clay and he's got a daughter up in uh, New York city, 27 years old, is a journalism major has been working in the marketing world and she was changing firms. And I said, Clay, if you talk to Ann Lanier and he goes, uh, well, we've talked some, but I hadn't really we hadn't gotten anywhere. I said, and this is just out of the blue. Have you talked to her about her, job change through the seven questions he called her quick start and and talked to her and then 45 minutes later he had a two-page email back where she was she had answered all seven of them of why she was going and she recognized the new place that she was going to that maybe she didn't fit the culture perfectly but she was willing to make that sacrifice for the other things and mm -hmm. it's, so it's like you know even like i was thinking about with you scott is you know, you're asking these people, hey, do you understand who what the culture is that you're going into and do you fit that? Yeah, you know, and I and it's one of those things where I probably don't spend enough time on it as a headhunter um, in terms of really diving into the, the, the culture and the values of the organization. Usually I'm selling the um, the features of the job itself, um, the yeah. compensation, you know, who your manager is going to be. But I think right. it's really important to because ultimately, you know, when you strip everything away, you know, money's important, but people want to work places that they can feel good about in terms of the values and the mission. And I don't think there's enough emphasis put on that. Um, and so this is a really good reminder to me <laughs> and to anybody else out there that's listening, that's looking for a job or hiring um, on either side to really focus on defining what values are important to you and then finding either candidates that align with those values or if you're the, the candidate, finding organizations right. that do. Uh, because no amount of money 
is going to make you happy if you're working for an organization that doesn't align with the values that you, you know, have for yourself. Well, or we're saying if you don't, if you can't, you know, go from the bottom up, if you don't feel like you're balanced, you know, that's work, life and money. If you don't feel like you're being developed, if you don't feel like you're being heard, if you don't feel like you're being measured correctly, if it's unclear what you're accountable for, if you don't really believe in the mission and the priorities, or if you just don't fit the core value cultures, you're going to be miserable. Absolutely. So, yeah. Walt, um, in summary here, uh, for our listeners that want to learn more about your work, uh, they can purchase the book, The Patient Organization, I'm assuming on Amazon, just about anywhere books are sold. Yep. yep. And they it's can visit you online, uh, uh, LinkedIn or at your website. LinkedIn. Uh, you know, Walt Brown is who I am, but 7Q7P is uh, all about what 7Q7P leads you into answering some questions about the seven questions. We run workshops where people come into and then uh, kind of the cool place to start. If you are a, a leader like an HR or, or CEO, CFO, we have a, a really easy to use seven question survey that you can use to you know, get the temperature of where your organization is on them. And you can get that uh, from the 7Q7P website? Yep, yep, all free. Awesome. So closing question, Walt, what is your greatest fear? What keeps you up at night? Oh, gosh, that's interesting. You should have told me about this question, Scott. (laughs) What keeps me up at night? So I go into the room, and while everybody says, you know, I'm being paid ultimately by the CEO, right? But the person that I care about is the the individuals working on the floor, the frontline workers, the people really out doing the stuff. And my number one fear is that I have brought in a client that's not willing to follow through and I'm having to drag them around where I could be overworking with somebody that's really bought into it. And I'm wasting like 10 days a year with people who aren't going to execute it uh, properly for their people. Does that make sense? It does. So how do you guard against that? Uh, really, really hard up front. You know, we interview them pretty, pretty heavily. We have to get on the same page. And, you know, when you go through the seven questions, if they, if their uh, light bulb goes off and they get it immediately, then they're good. If they kind of like, say, oh, I got to think about that, then I run like, run like hell. All right. So you heard it here. If you're a uh, organizational leader that's looking to implement change in your organization, but you're not willing to follow through with it, don't hire Walt Brown. Exactly. So thanks a lot for being here, Walt. Yeah. Thank you, Scott. Enjoyed it. And thanks, everyone, for listening.